in his 2001 lecture to Harvard Divinity School, the German theologian Michael Welker posed a haunting question. And the question that he asked that audience was, who is Christ Jesus for us today? Who is Christ Jesus for us today? Welker observed that in cultures that are largely influenced by Christianity, that Jesus exists as an ambivalent cultural icon. Christ is a cultural icon. He observes that Christ is embedded in every facet of society, in diverse and in latent ways, so that we see Christ in the visual arts. We see that in cathedrals. There's a reference to Christ in major production, musical productions. We see Christ in the symbol of the cross, which decorates church buildings, tombstones in cemeteries, and which decorate chains that dangle from the neck. We see Christ in the calendrical celebrations of Thanksgiving and Christmas, and of course, Easter. But he also points out that even though Christ is prevalent in Western society, this does not mean that he is received universally with wholehearted enthusiasm. He says there is a remarkable mixture of excitement and weariness, of enthusiasm and aversion when it concerns the person of Christ in Western world, in Western society. He is correct that Christ today is a cultural icon. For many, Christ is like a once great superstar who has passed his prime. He still continues to garner some interest in society, but by and large, he is no longer to be taken seriously. He is a has-been, a once great are once famed. And though many see Christ in this fashion, for the Christian, Christ is far more than a mere cultural icon. Indeed, the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians sets out the parameters of our thinking of our Lord Jesus Christ. He tells us, by the portrait that he paints of Jesus in the introduction to Galatians, that we are to see the Lord Jesus Christ in distinct and indefinite ways. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians, churches that he had founded in the southern part of Turkey on his first missionary journey. And Paul wrote to them from Antioch, Syrian Antioch, somewhere about 49 AD. And the reason that he felt necessary to write was because after planting the churches in Galatia, southern part of Galatia, Paul had heard that there were Jewish Christians called Judaizers who had arrived in Galatia and were contesting the gospel that Paul preached. 
They were perverting the gospel. If you look at Galatians 1 verse 6, he makes it clear that they were turning away from the gospel. What they were teaching was that Paul's preaching that salvation is by faith in Christ alone was insufficient and incomplete. So that if a person were to become a Christian, not only must he or she believe in Jesus, but they must also practice the Old Testament law, particularly in relationship to purity laws and food laws and in relationship to the observance of the Sabbath. Paul will therefore write in Galatian to set the gospel straight and to clarify that salvation depends solely upon the grace of God, that one is saved by faith in Christ. He will, in the first two chapters, defend the gospel. He will talk about the relationship of the law in chapters 3 and 4. And then he will deal with the matter of Christian freedom in chapters 5 and 6. But what I want to do is to consider two compelling descriptions of Jesus, as Paul has it in the first five verses of Galatians chapter 1. Paul says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Here we have the first picture of Jesus that Paul presents to the Galatians. And that is that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by God the Father. He begins the epistle in the customary way in which he writes, by first of all identifying the sender. We, 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 don't, we don't do that today when we are going to write a letter. In fact, we put our name at the bottom of the letter. But in the ancient world, the custom was to begin with the sender. And so Paul says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man. He begins by identifying himself, and he calls himself an apostle. Apostolos means one who is sent, the sent one. Immediately, Paul begins by identifying himself with the apostles in the Jerusalem church, with the disciples of the Lord Jesus. He says, I am an apostle, inferring just as Mark, just like Paul and just like Peter and James and John were apostles, so he is himself an apostle. He says that he's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he moves rapidly to describe the origin of his call to be an apostle. He does so in negative terms. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man. That is, he did not receive his call to be an apostle via human instruments. It may be that the false teachers there had said Paul had received his revelation by some form, but otherwise not from Christ. And so he says, Paul is an apostle, not from men, nor through men. He did not receive it from the Jerusalem council. He did not receive it from an individual like Peter. In fact, if you skip down to verse 12, you will see that he will tell you that when he began to proclaim the gospel, he says he did not receive it from man, nor was he taught it by man, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. In verse 17, he says when he was converted, he did not go up to Jerusalem to consult with the apostles. So he did not receive his gospel from the apostles. 
Well, how does he receive it? Well, he tells us in verse 1 of Galatians chapter 1, he says, Paul, not an apostle, a Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So that in positive terms, he received his calling to be an apostle from Jesus Christ and from God the Father. It is a divine call. It is God who has called him to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, whatever he proclaims must be received with the authority of Jesus Christ himself. It is here as he outlines the basis and the origin of his call to be an apostle that Paul makes this profound statement regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. For he says that he received his call not from man, not through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And then he says, who raised him, that is Christ, from the dead. This is the first prominent statement about the Lord, that God the Father raised Christ from the dead. The verb, agiro, means to awaken. It means to raise. It means to stand upright. And what Paul says is that God the Father, from whom he received his call, raised up Christ, stood him upright. In other words, God breathed in his lifeless body the breath of life, and he came alive and stood upright. Paul, an apostle, not from man, but one who receives his apostleship from Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised up Jesus Christ. This is the only reference to the resurrection in the book of Galatians, but it plays a pivotal role. Indeed, the subject of the resurrection is an integral part of Paul's teaching and an integral part of the gospel itself. If you recall what he says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, he says this, And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. He tells us in Romans chapter 10 that for one to become a true Christian, he or she must not only believe in the crucifixion of Christ, but they must believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And that is why he says, therefore, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And what I'm arguing then is that for Paul, the resurrection was integral to salvation. For you to be saved, you must not only believe in a crucified Christ, you must believe in a risen Christ. You must believe that he died, and you must believe that he rose. If you simply believe that Christ died, but did not rise, then you do not believe in the Christ of the Gospels. You do not believe in the Christ of Scripture, because the Christ of Scripture no longer hangs on the cross is no longer in the tomb. He died and rose again. So for the Apostle Paul, the resurrection was integral to the message of salvation. For the Apostle Paul, the resurrection vindicated and was indeed a divine vindication of the Son. 
he tells the Romans this. He says that Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead in Romans 1, 4 and following. The resurrection is not only necessary for salvation, the resurrection is God's vindication of the Son. How do we know that he's who he said he was? If he had come into the world and claimed to be the Messiah, did mighty miracles and simply died and was not raised, we would have to consider him to have been a great man, but nothing more. But the resurrection from the dead is the ultimate vindication that Jesus Christ is, is who he said he is, the Son of God. He was raised from the dead. And that vindicated his claim to be not only the agent of God, but the Son of God. And therefore all that he said and did may be trusted because the resurrection is the vindication of his sonship. But the resurrection of which Paul, to which Paul refers here in verse 1 underscores his victory over death. Paul says, knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Christ came into the world to do battle with our great enemy. And that great enemy must not only be seen as Satan, but also death. This is the enemy that as mankind we have never been able to conquer from Genesis chapter 3. Because there in Genesis chapter 3, the curse has been unleashed on humanity and death has marched silently through the centuries beginning there in Genesis chapter 3. You come to the early chapters of Genesis and you hear in chapter 5, this man lived so many years, had so many children, and he died. And that refrain continues. He lived so many years, had so many children, and he died. And the best of us and the greatest of us have been stalked and eventually overpowered by death. The great men of history, the great generals, whether it may be Caesar, or whether it may be Napoleon, or even before him, whoever it may have been, however great they may have been, they have never been able to overpower death. And yet Christ came into the world to do battle with our great enemy, death. And yes, he was bruised. Yes, he died, but he rose victoriously. Paul says that God raised him from the dead. It's a signal not only of divine vindication, but of his permanent victory over death. And the resurrection of Jesus not only shows his victory over death, his resurrection anticipates our future victory and future resurrection. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 14, And God both raised up our Lord Jesus Christ and shall also raise us up by his power. Because our Lord Jesus Christ was raised, then believers also will be raised. Yes, this natural body is sown in incorruption or incorruption. 
It is sown in disgrace and weakness, but it will be raised imperishable. It will be raised glorious and powerful, Paul tells the, the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 43. And so therefore, Paul would have us understand then the centrality of the resurrection before he gets down to brass tacks, before he begins to open up the subject of justification and the law and the spirit of God, before he deals with any major theological doctrine, Paul begins by reminding us that he has been called by Jesus Christ and called by God the Father and that God has raised Jesus from the dead. This message was important because the reason that the Galatians had begun to listen to another gospel, a gospel says that you must believe in Christ plus you must also keep the Old Testament laws, Christ plus gospel, which is therefore no true gospel. The reason that they had begun to listen to this false gospel of the Judaizers, it is because they had forgotten that Christ has been raised, that Christ has issued in a new era by his resurrection from the dead, that they are no longer now in the era of law, but they are in the era of grace and the Spirit. And so Paul, before he does anything else, he brings them back to this fundamental truth that God raised Jesus from the dead. Who is Jesus Christ for you today? Who is Jesus Christ for you today? I would submit to you that part of the answer that is required is that Jesus Christ is the risen Savior, the one whom God, by his almighty and divine power, stood up, stood upright, made him stand up from death, never again to face death. But there is a second picture that the apostle presents of Jesus. He tells us, he says, oh, and to all the brethren who are with me, verse 2, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we have this Second disclosure, not only that God raised Christ, but he says, verse 4, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Mm, a massive statement, a tremendous truth. He says, he's praying for them, grace to you, God's unmerited favor. May God's unmerited favor be given to you, grace to you, and peace. May the shalom of God, the fullness of divine blessing be upon you. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. This prayer for grace and peace from God the Father and from Christ triggers now this second major statement about Christ. And Paul here tells us that not only was Christ raised from the dead, but Christ gave himself, he says, for our sins. This is then the second statement. Christ gave himself for our sins. The language of Christ giving himself is not uniquely Paul. 
It is indeed the language of Jesus. For in Matthew chapter 10, verse 45, our Lord Jesus Christ tells us that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And perhaps there's an allusion there to the book of Isaiah, chapter 53 and verse 12, where he poured out his soul unto death. But Paul makes repeated use of the language that Christ gave himself. He, he says this perhaps in the classical passage in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2 where he says, walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself as a sacrifice and an offering to God for a sweet smelling savor. Walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself. Christ gave himself. He says similarly in 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. He says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, and here it is, who gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified in due time. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. In writing to his co-worker, Titus, in chapter 2, verse 14, he says of Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Now, Paul, therefore, uses repeatedly the language that Christ gave himself for us. But what does it mean? That Christ gave himself for us? Well, it means that Christ gave himself as a sacrifice. That's what we find in Ephesians 5 verse 2. Christ loved us and gave himself as a sacrifice and an offering to God as a sweet-smelling savor. It means that Christ gave himself as a sacrifice. When you and I think of sacrifice, generally we think in strictly non-biblical terms. Some who observe Lent may decide they're going to sacrifice. And they're going to give up drinking, and they're going to give up partying, and they're going to give up a few things. And they think of that as a sacrifice. The fellow who I know, I just met him. He hadn't seen him for a long time. He had slimmed down. He was once rather heavy, plumpish, if we were to be brutally honest. And then when I saw him, he had shed a lot of pounds. And I asked him, what, what, what had he done? Well, he decided to cut out his wife baking, get rid of it. And he was eating now a lot of vegetables and grass and other things like that. And he was looking fine. But, you know, he considered giving up his wife baking and eating a lot of vegetables. He considered that to be a sacrifice. We think of sacrifice in non-biblical terms. But when Paul says Christ gave himself as a sacrifice, that is, gave himself as a sacrifice for us, he's using the language of the Old Testament. Because we need to recognize that the language of sacrifice is rooted in the Old Testament cultic system. That essentially, that sin alienates a man from God. Sin puts a wedge between God and the sinner. And for that divide to be bridged, for God to be reconciled to the sinner, there must be a payment. 
And so God devised that he would accept, at least on a temporary basement, a replacement, a substitute for the sinner. And so Israel were commanded to bring animals, like a lamb. They were the sacrifices that they would bring to God. The animal would indeed receive the, the, the guilt of the sinner. The sinner's guilt, in other words, would be transferred to the animal, and the animal would have its throat cut. Its blood would be spilled as a reminder that the sinner deserves to die. There was a substitution. The, the lamb would die in place of the sinner. But one thing that was very evident, at least in the Old Testament ritual of sacrifice, was that regardless of how many animals were sacrificed, sin could never ever be removed by the sacrifice of an animal. And so there was always this anticipation, this lingering hope, this looking for another sacrifice. And that is why John, when he saw the Lord Jesus Christ and been given in a, in a moment illumination, he could say, behold, the Lamb of God. You see, John was ecstatic. John was overjoyed because he understood that Jesus Christ has come as the definitive Lamb to deal with sin. And Paul says that Christ was not only raised, but he gave himself for our sins. He gave himself as a sacrifice for sin. The very notion of sacrifice biblically is a messy affair. It requires pain and suffering. Our Lord Jesus Christ suffered greatly while he was here on earth. He faced poverty and opposition and danger. But you see, the increase of his suffering as he drew closer and closer to Calvary. You see him in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he informed the disciples, he could say, My soul is sorrowful even unto death. There in the Garden, as the shadow of the cross loomed, as he drew closer and closer to Calvary, our Lord Jesus began to be sorrowful in his heart. He was seized by a holy fear. He wrestled in the garden so much so that his sweat became like great drops of blood. What was it that so moved him? It was the notion that he would suffer under the wrath of God. Something that was unimaginable something that he perceived as unbearable to have God's anger unleashed against him. You see his suffering in the trial before the Sanhedrin. He's deserted by the disciples, deserted by his nation, cowardly, given up by Pilate. You see him being flogged, given the caronine, this whip that was embedded, that had embedded in it, shards of bone and pieces of metal that was intended to tear flesh and to bring blood. There were many people who, who were just merely whipped with this instrument and died before they were even crucified. You see the Lord Jesus carrying the cross being of his cross and falling down under it as he goes to the cross. And you see him nailed to the cross. The Romans had taken crucifixion from the Phoenicians. 
It was the most barbaric, the most frightening, the most horrific way of death known to man in the early centuries. It was not merely intended to kill, but it was intended for one to suffer a long and agonizing death. Our Lord Jesus Christ was stripped naked, a total removal of all human dignity. He was strung up between heaven and earth for men to gawk and to ridicule him, but he is the Son of God. He is the Lord of glory. He had at his disposal ten thousands of angels. He commanded the armies of heaven. He is, after all, the creator of the heavens and the earth. But he hangs naked and helplessly before a laughing, ridiculing world. And though this suffering of intense pain with nails hanging on nails for six hours is beyond our conception, the true horror of the cross must be seen not in what he suffered physically, but what he suffered spiritually. Because our Lord Jesus Christ there on the cross experienced hell at its fullest. In that moment of absolute terror, absolute abandonment, he could cry out, not that disciples had abandoned him, but my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Why? Why did Christ have to suffer this way? It was because he must bear the totality of the sufferings that we should have borne. He must suffer physically and psychologically and spiritually. In other words, he must in that moment in time experience all of hell together for us. You see, when Paul says Christ gave himself for us, this is what he means. He gave himself as a sacrificial victim to die for our sins. He tells us in the same verse, in verse 4, that Christ gave himself for our sins. He tells us the reason why he did so. He says that he might deliver us from this present evil age. That's the purpose. Why did he do this? The verb, exero, means to deliver from danger. And Paul says Christ gave himself that he sacrificed himself, that he might deliver us. He came on a rescue operation to deliver us from a danger. And the danger Paul identifies as this present evil age. What is this present evil age? Well, it is this, this humanity in its opposition to God. And therefore, the, this present evil age is synonymous with the world with a concept of cosmos used often in Scripture. You see in the Gospel of John, 
the word cosmos occurs over and over again. And when John uses the term world, he does not merely refer to this geographical area. He's referring to humanity in its rebellion against God. Christ came into the world, therefore, and gave himself to deliver us from this age. Why? Because this age is an age in rebellion against God. More seriously, according to Ephesians 6.16, it is a world that is under the dominion of Satan, the principalities and the powers. And thirdly, this world is under the curse of God, a world that one day God will bring to books and will judge. So Christ came to deliver us from our bondage to this world, from its corruption and from its eternal destiny as condemned. He came to deliver us. And that is why the Apostle Paul could say when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. Christ came to deliver that we, that you and I would not have to share in the character of this age nor share in its destiny of separation from God. He came to pay for our sins that God would not indeed judge us with the world of rebels. He not only came to deliver us from this age, he came to deliver us into a new age. For if you were to consider what Paul says in Galatians 6.15, he says that for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. That what really matters, the Galatians were so much caught up in this matter of circumcision. Paul says what really matters is not whether a person is circumcised or not circumcised, but what really matters is a new creation, that he belongs to this new era, that he belongs to the kingdom of God. He belongs to this new age over which Christ reigns. So Paul says that Christ gave himself for our sins, the purpose to deliver us from this present evil age. He tells us the basis on which Christ gave himself. He says, according to the will of God. We need to know that the cross was not an accident, that the hand of God was involved on the cross. Peter says the same thing in Acts 2, verse 23. Him being delivered by the determined purpose of God and the foreknowledge of God. That, 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 is, that is the only way that the Romans could have crucified Jesus was it was because it was the will of God. God had so planned from eternity that he would send his son. And why did he do this? Why did he will that we should be saved by his son? Because it was the only means by which we could be saved. We needed somebody who had purchased with God. Somebody who could offer a sacrifice that God would respect. Somebody who could stand in the gap between us and God. Somebody who would render to God a perfect sacrifice. And there was nobody else in the universe, not even Gabriel, could do it. It required a champion. It required God himself. And so he willed that God the Son should come according to the will of God. It shows you the love of God. 
that he would give up his son, that he should die for our sins. No, Christ gave himself for us, but it was in accordance with God's will. It was the plan and the purpose of God that Christ should bear our sins. It is love that moved him. It is righteousness and concern for his holiness that moves him to send Christ to die for us. And that is why our Lord can tell us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This truth is important. It's important because the Galatians had not only forgotten about the cruciality of the resurrection, they had forgotten about the cruciality of the cross. That the reason that they were turning away to another gospel, it is because they, they had failed to realize how tremendously profound the death of Christ really is. That Christ is, is God's answer to human sin. That his death is the remedy. That no amount of keeping the law or trying to be good can never save us. We need a righteousness which is alien to us. We need a righteousness that is a gift and not produced from within us. They fail to understand that Christ was completely satisfactory in his death, that he offered a perfect sacrifice, that he died and he paid for our sins, that we are saved by his death alone. We are saved by his resurrection alone. Well, my dear friends, I must make a few observations and then conclude. You and I must recognize the centrality of a crucified and risen Christ. If I may ask the question asked by Welker again, I, will, I shall do so. Who is Jesus Christ for you today? Who is Jesus Christ for you today? I want to suggest that he's more than a cultural icon. That he is the risen Christ. You need to know that without Christ, there is no Christianity. Without Christ, there is no salvation. And without Christ, there is no church. And without Christ, there is no hope. There is no hope. We are of men most miserable. You need to recognize that the cross is central. That the resurrection is central to our faith. We must never downplay the death and resurrection of Jesus. We should never compare anything to it. We should never seek to add anything to this finished work of Christ. We should never take our puny efforts and try to compare them to this magnanimous, this massive work of the Lord Jesus Christ in dying for our sins and being raised for our justification. We are what we are because of Jesus Christ on the cross. It means not only that you must recognize the centrality of the cross and his resurrection, but it means that you must claim the crucified and risen Christ as your own. To many, the cross was a scandal and a stumbling block. But for us, it is the means by which we are saved. Christ gave himself as a sacrifice. He gave not silver or gold, but he gave his own blood. 
His death was the price of our forgiveness. His death revealed his power to save. His death delivered us from the fate of humanity apart from God. His faith is power that released us from the trap of Satan and from the fate of this world. And we have now been liberated because of his death. We are under new management. We are not under the old management of Satan. We are under the management of Jesus. Why? Because he died for our sins and delivered us, freed us. And he did so because it was God's will. And the, the, the reality is that you must not only know Christ, know him intellectually, but you must know him spiritually and experientially. You must look upon him who was pierced by our sins. It is our sins that placed him on the cross. He had no sins of his own. And you and I must look at Christ, blooded and beaten and crucified, and recognize that it is our lying, it is our lust, it is our hatred, it is our disobedience that placed him there. And we must indeed be wounded in our hearts. We must look at his broken body and come with a broken and a contrite spirit. We must ask God to give us our holy hatred of sin that placed Christ on the cross. We must flee from every known sin. Why? Because Jesus was crucified for sins. And then you must claim him. You must claim him by faith to be your own. To trust in him that he died for you and he rose from the grave for you. That your salvation is secure in him. To trust him with your whole heart. There is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved by the name of Jesus Christ. My dear friends, this is the great news that Jesus died and rose for sinners. And anyone who comes to him by faith and trust in his death and resurrection will be saved. But you and I have one more duty to him. Not only must you claim him, you must glorify him. Do you know verse 5? Galatians 1 verse 5 ends this way. To him be glory forever and ever. Why does Paul say that? Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. He says it is by the will of God. And this reality that our sins have been covered by Christ and that God was behind it leads Paul to to a tremendous doxology. To him, he says, be glory forever and ever. In other words, the giving of Christ by the will of God deserves praise. That God must be glorified. And you and I, who are Christians, 
who have been saved by the power of the cross, we must bring a sacrifice of praise to the Lord. It includes the sacrifice of a yielded will of a surrendered life. It requires a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Paul, as he closes Galatians, says, let me not boast in anything else but Christ and the cross. Indeed, the language he uses is such that you understand that the cross is at the center of boasting. God forbids, he says, that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You and I will never do justice to this picture of Jesus Christ until you know that Jesus Christ is a risen, living, and available Savior. That you do not save, you do not serve a dead, a dead God. You serve a living God. And his name is Jesus. He is the God who is able to change your circumstances. He is the God who is able to fix your marriages, to help you in school. He is the God who is able to, to open a door for your future. He's the God who's able to cure you from diseases. He's the God who's able to do great and marvelous things of which you can never conceive. Why? Because he's a living God. And by the way, because he defeated the greatest enemy, which is death, there is no other enemy, there is no other obstacle that he cannot flatten. You see, he's a living Savior. You ought to praise him. And he is... A crucified Savior who loved you and gave himself for you. You are to bless him for the, for the cross. You're to bless him daily in private devotions. You're to bless him among the people of God. Why? Because your salvation has been won at a great price through Jesus Christ. May God help you that you will say to him be the glory. Glorify him in your living and glorify him with your lips for Jesus' sake. Amen.